Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar and with a special guest, um, Professor Adam Winkler from the UCLA School of Law. And we'll be introducing him in just a moment. First, hello, Akil. Uh, hello, Andy, and uh, welcome, Adam. So honored to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, a pleasure to be on the podcast that I've listened to so many times on my walks to work. We, we did not pay him to say that, but, yes. but, 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 but thank you so much. We did not know that until we reached out to, to Adam earlier this week. Yeah, so we, some, some podcasts want to be the podcast of record, and now we're the podcast of workout. So that's, uh, that's, that's a step in the right direction for sure. So, um, you know, we're, we're here in, to discuss what we began to talk about last week in the aftermath of the tragedy at Uvalde, Texas. Um, we're going to you know, talk about, last week we talked about gun constitutional law, and we're going to continue to do that uh, in, a, in a certain respect, which is that the constitutional actors, um, the Congress and the president and state legislatures and so forth are, will be in play here uh, in the near future. We're going to talk about you know, what might be on the agenda, what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. And we really couldn't have a better person with us for that than Professor Winkler. So let me just tell our audience a little bit about him. Um, he's the Connell Professor of Law at the UCLA School of Law. After studying at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service, he received his JD from the NYU School of Law and later a master's in political science from UCLA. He clerked for Judge David Thompson on the Ninth Circuit and joined the UCLA faculty in 2002. His specialties are U.S. constitutional law, the Supreme Court, and notably uh, gun policy. His most recent book, We the Corporations, which is not a gun book, was a finalist for the National Book Award and was widely honored, including the Silver Gavel Award from the American Bar Association. And Akil is now showing me his Silver Gavel Award. Um, <laughs> Um, his 2000 it's a, it's, a, it's a silver gavel. Yes. Well, surprise. Um, his 2011 book, uh, Gunfight, the Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America, is considered by many, including Professor Amar, as one of, if not the best book on the subject. And uh, in the summa cum laude of book honors, it was the subject of a question on the television show Jeopardy. Um, He's one of the 20 most cited law professors in judicial opinions today, according to the UCLA Law website, um, and he frequently appears as a commentator on a wide variety of prominent media outlets, including Face the Nation, All Things Considered, and now at the pinnacle at America's Constitution. Um, <laughs> he serves on the board of directors of the Brennan Center for Justice. So welcome, Professor Winkler. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And if I could just uh, add just a couple of, of additional words of introduction to what um, Andy has, has already said. Um, our audience knows this is a very serious podcast. We try to bring you um, the best uh, guests and, and the, the best ideas. And I don't know Adam Winkler extremely well. He wasn't one of my students. And we're on opposite coasts. But I, I hugely respect him, and I want, I want him to, to hear that face-to-face, um, uh, -face, so to speak. You're, you're, this is an audio podcast, but, but, but on Zoom we can, we can see each other. And, and here are some of the reasons that, that I do, because these are my standards. They're my criteria. Constitutional law, in my view, is about the American people. 
it comes from read the people. Um, it's short, so the ordinary people, um, in principle, could read the document uh, way back when and decide whether uh, to vote yes or no when it came before them for ratification. It's ultimately, in my view, a populist project, um, and so serious constitutional scholars should actually write not just for each other, not just for judges, although they should try to help judges um, who have a difficult job and, and, and lawmakers who have a difficult job um, and other academics who are um, serious. They, they should be writing for fellow academics and for lawmakers and, and, and lawyers um, and judges. But in constitutional law in particular, if they're able to write for a, a general audience, they're doing a really extraordinary public service. And that means actually writing books. And that's what I try to do of late, and, and that's what um, Adam does. Um, this podcast is, is part of a, a, a broader um, popular constitutional project of, of trying to make constitutional law more accessible to we the people of the United States. And, and that's what Adam does, not just in his books, but in media appearances and op-eds and, and, and other things. These are connected to his scholarship. And most law professors, actually, the unit of contribution, it's a very significant unit of contribution, um, it's, it's not the book, it's the article. And for my first, the first half of my, my own legal academic career, I basically focused more on articles. And now I'm transitioning more to books. And, and Adam is uh, you know, way, way ahead of me on this. He, he understood that from, from the beginning. And the other thing that I want to say about his scholarship is I think he really tries to give his audience both sides of, of, of the relevant issue. The, the books are very accessible. They're, they're easy to read. They're, they're uh, gripping narratives. But he also, like Bob Woodward, who was our first guest, I think, Andy, on the podcast, is trying to talk to everyone, to hear everyone's point of view, and then present you, the reader, with, for example, what leading gun litigation looked like, both from the point of view of the gun controllers and the gun enthusiasts. Um, in, in a book like Gunfight, um, which is brilliantly titled, but doesn't take a, har- a strong position the way there's an article, for example, Gun Crazy. Well, you know where that article is coming from. Um, and that's not Adam's uh, point of view. He's going to give you both sides and talk to people on both sides, and he respect- he's respected by people on both sides. And that's why we brought him on the podcast today. And of course, the the issue of guns, you know, generates strong emotions to be sure. So it's not surprising that people would take strong positions one way or the other. So let me let me ask you, if I might, to to lead off here, uh, Adam, if I may call you Adam during this podcast. Um, thank you. Uh, so when you heard about what had happened in Texas, I'm sure you had an emotional reaction just as a human being. What was your reaction as an expert in the field? What, you know, what did you think would be the significance of this event? Well, I, had, uh, I was obviously very, uh, very disappointed, uh, very saddened to hear about this mass shooting. Um, a little exhausted, too, uh, because the mass shootings are such a regular occurrence. And I know that when there's a mass shooting, I'm likely to get a lot of phone calls and have to do a lot of media uh, and do a lot of interviews. And, uh, and people always want to know what can be done to change things. And given our political stalemate, it doesn't look like uh, there are great opportunities for reform. 
uh, which is, of course, disheartening, and it's hard to be that messenger as well. Um, but uh, I will say that I've been heartened in the days since in that there does seem to be uh, at least a little bit more momentum for reform in this space today than there was uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, than there was, for instance, after the Buffalo shooting just a few weeks ago. So uh, I am, uh, uh, as always, exhausted by mass shootings and saddened uh, that more loss of life has occurred, um, but also uh, heartened a little bit in the sense that uh, maybe some people are starting to see uh, that change is necessary in this space. Why is it that they might feel that way after this shooting, um, this this horror, as opposed to uh, another one? I mean, obviously we have the you know children is particularly you know you know dr- driven home. But uh, do you think it has something to do maybe with the? Well, what do you think it has to do with? Well, I think the fact that they were very young children who were so mercilessly slaughtered really has an impact. We saw that after the Sandy Hook shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. There had been previous mass shootings before that, uh, and there have been subsequent mass shootings since then that were worse. But that mass shooting, because it targeted so many young children, really did spark uh, new ways of thinking in this space, uh, encouraged uh, the rise of new gun safety reform organizations, really created a lot more political momentum behind the gun safety reform uh, community and advocacy groups. Even though no major federal laws were passed in the wake of Newtown, I do think that shooting, because of its victims, did end up changing the gun debate in important ways in America. And I think this shooting, too, uh, might have that effect. Um, It does seem like uh, the fact that there were so many kids who were um, uh, who did lose their lives to the shooter um, is influencing people. It definitely tugs at the heartstrings. I think the subsequent stories that have come out about the failure of law enforcement to engage the shooter and to do more to put an end to the shooting quickly, I think is also going to give this particular mass shooting life in terms of a political issue. You know, if the story that we've been told is that the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, we have to confront the reality that even the good guys with a gun don't want to get shot and don't want to find themselves in a shootout uh, and uh, that we can't even trust those who are trained um, as the Uvalde police was trained to engage an active shooter should one be in a school uh, to do their jobs and to use those firearms uh, to protect us and to protect the community. Yeah, I saw I was just in preparation for this uh, podcast. I was speaking to Akil. We saw something on a in a Texas uh, newspaper's website where they said that there were 19 good guys with guns, you know, um, that were uh, unable to, to uh, stop the one bad guy in, in time. And perhaps it's also a question of, of speed um, as well. So anyway, so what what in your view is on the table now? And perhaps we could discuss that and then we could look at, you know, to what degree that might actually make it, these things might make a difference. So what, what measures are on the table now that, that Americans uh, who, who hope to, to see something, some action taken here um, that will make a difference? What, what, what's on the table? Well, I think there might be different things on the table uh, for Congress uh, than for the states and the state mm-hmm. legislatures. And we're likely to see some reform, uh, at least at the state level, 
And uh, it remains to be seen whether there's sufficient support uh, in Congress to do anything. Uh, With regards to Congress, um, we've seen, uh, I think, that uh, tomorrow, Thursday of this week, we're going to see the House uh, push forward a bill that uh, involves some significant gun reform, including raising the age to purchase firearms from 18 to 21. Current federal law is kind of confused on this issue. It allows you to buy Uh, uh, a rifle at the age of 18 uh, and a handgun at the age of 21. Uh, But even that law is not very precise. It allows people who are between the ages of 18 and 20 to buy a handgun so long as they don't buy it from a licensed dealer. Now, that's kind of a bizarre law because it pushes people out of the background check system that we have. Um, So it's possible we might see something raising the gun age. Uh, We've seen, uh, I think, the the House proposal that they're considering will include potentially a ban on uh, high-capacity magazines, a magazine that can hold uh, more than 10 rounds of ammunition at any one time. Um, We will likely see uh, some momentum for federal funding for states to adopt red flag laws. These are otherwise known as extreme risk protection order laws that allow family or friends uh, to go to police and uh, have the police go to court and see if they can take away someone's guns for a temp- on a temporary basis if they're going through some kind of significant crisis that makes them a, a risk to use those firearms. So we might see that come out of Congress. I'm not uh, extremely hopeful about the chances or optimistic about the chances there. Uh, and we've seen that uh, because of the current state of the filibuster, um, that can last forever, unlike the filibusters of yore, uh, where Jimmy Stewart had to stand there and keep the floor. Um, now we have indefinite filibusters, and it takes 60 votes to overcome that filibuster. Uh, and as a result, we don't see the Senate acting on almost any significant issues that confront Americans today, much less one as divisive as guns. At the state level, I think we're going to see more red flag laws be adopted. We'll see some more states take uh, consider banning high-capacity magazines. Um, only a few states have tried to ban high-capacity magazines, and we might see more states decide to do that. Um, we might see some states raise the gun age for purchasing firearms uh, in their own states. Um, many states, even a, a, a relatively gun-restrictive state like New York, allows people who are 18 to buy military-style weapons, uh, assault rifles, for instance, or rifles generally. So we might see some states raise the gun age. I think we'll also see more states taking up what both New York, uh, a law that New York passed last year and that California is considering passing now, which is a state law that makes clear that gun makers who who advertise guns and market guns Um, uh, in ways that might be associated with uh, causing gun violence or causing mass shootings can be sued uh, under one of the exceptions to the federal immunity law. Um, uh, That's an area where uh, I'm getting a lot of calls from lawmakers uh, considering um, how they can go about using that exception in the federal immunity law that was recently used by the Sandy Hook 
um, families to sue Remington and win a 70, 70 plus million dollar judgment, uh, not judgment, settlement against Remington. Um, uh, other states are looking to open up that possibility to hold gun makers accountable. So I, I think we're going to see reform in those spaces, uh, especially at the state level uh, and possibly at the federal level. So the you mentioned the uh, the possibility of raising the age uh, for gun ownership from 18 to 21. Are there constitutional issues with that? Well, virtually anything you do to regulate guns right now, that is a direct regulation of a gun or gun owner, raises potential Second Amendment issues right now. Uh, The scope of the Second Amendment remains somewhat unclear, but what seems pretty clear is that the Supreme Court is prepared to expand Second Amendment protections and call into question a variety of forms of gun safety reform. The court currently has before it the Bruin case that I know your listeners are already familiar with. Uh, We could get a decision on that case any day now. That case um, narrowly involves a challenge to New York's uh, restrictive permitting for concealed carry. Uh, And uh, the court in that case uh, formally uh, seems likely just to strike down New York's law. But many people are looking to the court to see what they say about gun safety regulation more generally and the scope of the Second Amendment more generally and how that might affect various kinds of reform proposals. It seems pretty Um, certain to me that we're likely to see the Supreme Court call into question laws like restrictions on military-style assault rifles in the coming years, that we're likely to see the Supreme Court call into question restrictions on high-capacity magazines in coming years. We may see the court, too, call into question even more popular laws like red flag extreme risk protection order laws, uh, which do raise some potential due process concerns, uh, given that most people uh, who are subject to these orders uh, do not have uh, the right to appear before a court before uh, their firearms are confiscated uh, on a temporary basis. So uh, I think we're likely to see the Second Amendment expand. And uh, indeed, even if there's a raising the gun age, it does raise some constitutional questions and will certainly be the subject of a constitutional challenge. Um, and there are other rights, of course, that uh, are secured to uh, Americans at the age of 18, such as the right to vote. Um, um, but uh, in my view, uh, every right should be taken as its own thing and its own uh, particular set of problems. Um, and the truth is, with regards to firearms, uh, we know that people between the ages of 18 and 21 um, don't have the well-developed brain that focuses properly on things like long-term consequences of behavior. Um, this is just brain science that doesn't really form completely until one's about 25 years old. Uh, and so there are good reasons to keep people from uh, possessing firearms uh, at a young age. Gail, you were so- going to comment on that? Yeah, I was just going to jump in uh, because Adam is just picking up almost seamlessly um, on some of the issues that we've tried to identify in our past episodes, including last week's episode, um, which um, summarized um, some um, earlier um, things that we did uh, after the oral argument in the the New York uh, and Bruin case. One thing that Adam said, let me just connect four or five of of the threads is um, that the New York case is likely to be decided um, 
against the New York law. So he's making the same prediction that I made and lots of others have made. There are two related problems, I think, with the New York law. And, and one is something that he, he mentioned in connection with, possi- with possible judicial attacks on red flag laws, which I'm going to come back to in just a minute, the due process question, fair procedures. Um, my concern with the New York law, um, uh, which is articulated by, I think, Chief Justice Roberts, um, uh, among others, at oral argument, is that there didn't seem to be very many standards. Um, it, there was a lot of governmental discretion about whether y- you were good enough to, um, or had a good enough reason to get a gun. And it, even if there were no Second Amendment, if we're just about allocating you know, toasters or just eligibility for microwave ovens if they were in short supply. Or um, let's take something that is in the news, baby food. It's in short supply. And if the government just set up some sort of a system in which they would hand out the baby food, but they wouldn't really give you clear criteria about who could get the baby food and who couldn't get the baby food, um, I would be worried just on general rule of law, due process grounds. There's just too much inherent arbitrariness, uh, the possibility of government capriciousness in the system. And that's having nothing to do with the Second Amendment or guns or or anything. I said that's why I hope that this case, even as it, um, this Supreme Court case, even as it invalidates the New York law, doesn't say something very sweeping like, oh, permits are not permissible, licensing regimes in general are not permissible. And that connects with two other things that Adam said. So one is on state counting. We, 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 uh, and we talked about it in our previous episodes, how many states do this or that or the other thing. The federal constitutionality of something, both when it comes to a possible federal government action, like a federal red flag law, or state action when it comes to the 14th Amendment, um, which limits um, what states can do, uh, our audience knows that I think um, that it's, um, justices do take into account and should take into account how many other states um, have similar laws on the books on the one hand, or on the other hand, constitutional prohibitions against this sort of um, uh, law. Um, and, and, and that's a state counting um, exercise. Um, I think that actually more populous states should count more. We'll talk about that, in, I'm sure, as, as we go along today. But um, I think the New York law it was, if not unique, at least unusual in its lack of procedural safeguards um, in its permitting regime. And there are other states that have licensing and permitting regimes that seem to me to be less arbitrary and, 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 and whimsical. Adam said one other thing, and, and, and when it comes to red flags, this is going to be important because Adam said, even if you don't have immediate congressional action on this or that or the other thing, if you have a bunch of states that are passing laws on, on um, large magazines or other things, at a certain point, when you have lots of state laws on the books regulating a certain aspect, it's easier to say, oh, that aspect isn't you know, some super strong constitutional guarantee of unenumerated rights. Again, putting just to one side for a minute the Second Amendment, because you might say the Second Amendment doesn't tell us very much because it was about militias 200 years ago, and and that was a different thing than than guns today for a whole bunch of of reasons. The final thing that Adam said that picks up on something, Andy, that I said last week um, in a clip responding in parts to um, what Chief Justice Roberts said. He said, oh, well, you don't license press, you don't license exercises of the First Amendment, why should we have licensing or permits when it comes to the Second Amendment? 
And Adam said the same thing. He just said the same thing that I did, which is the rules for one right or one amendment don't always apply equally to every other right. They might, they might not. We have to identify relevant similarities and differences. We have to explain, if we think there's a difference, what the difference is. Um, So I say there's a, a special constitutional history when it comes to licensing the press. It's associated with a doctrine called no prior restraint, which is a very, very deep doctrine in Anglo-American law. It's in Blackstone. And so we don't have press licensing, and that's we don't have that same thing on the Second Amendment. I said um, in our last episode, of course if you're in prison, you don't get to take your gun in with you as a general matter, but you do actually get to have a pencil and paper and, and publish even op-eds um, in, in the New York Times from, from prison, letter from a Birmingham jail, uh, Gandhi's famous communications from prison and that's because of the obvious point which I said before, that sticks and stones and guns can break people's bones and kills them, kill them and, and words can't okay, so I say, oh, it's more like licensing cars or toasters or microwave ovens than it might be like you know licensing the press and that's related to the final thing that adam said which is oh what about laws that move from 18 to 21 in various ways so first he said we already have certain laws on the books federally at 21 at least for certain um, uh, firearms and not others so this wouldn't be completely out of the blue now of course yes you can vote at age 18, and if this were just about the Second Amendment without anything else, oh, old enough to fight, old enough to vote, you know, if it's about military service or something, but it isn't just about that. We're not talking just about the Second Amendment without intervening constitutional developments that have modified the system. And Adam gave you something, he gave you a really important fact. He said, we now know, because of science, that the the brain um, develops even after 18. And you combine that, you say, well, then, if people can't think straight, why do you let them vote? And the answer is because one bad vote doesn't kill someone in general. Um, And so there are different consequences for letting slightly immature uh, minds participate in voting, on the one hand, than having very powerful killing machines on the other. So um, now... Science is going to be complicated because the science also, and I'd love to get Adam's thoughts on this, truthfully, um, if we're doing a demographic analysis, the science also suggests that um, male brains may develop differently than um, female brains. I, I, I have um, three young adults um, in, in our households. Two happen to be, they just turned 21, uh, a female, and one happens to be male. And as they were growing up, Candidly, I thought I noticed um, developmental sort of differences on average between the, the girls and, and, and the boy. Now, if we actually had different rules for males between 18 and 21 and females, oh, that would be a problem because now we're actually talking also about constitutional rules about sex discrimination. There's a case called Craig versus Boren that said you can't let you know, 19-year-old girls drink beer but prohibit um, 19-year-old boys from drinking beer. But if you just look at the science, and if you just look at the, the, the numbers, most of these mass shootings, they're disproportionately y- young people, but they're also, frankly, disproportionately male young people. Um, but if you're going to pass constitutional muster, I would say, oh, it can't just be targeting men between 18 and 21. It would have to, I think, be a more general prohibition of just no one under 21. But I'd love to get Adam back in on, on, on some of those points. Well, specifically, Adam, I think, you know, I'd like to know, 
you know, if we, are, you know, you mentioned these general classes of, of laws, red flag laws and, you know, and so forth, you know, with these various constitutional considerations, what advice would you give to lawmakers in drafting these laws? What, what should you avoid? What should you, you know, do, you know, and to the public, uh, <laughs> I think that many of us are, are crying in our beer here listening to, to, uh, to some of this and the notion that, oh, we might finally get something through Congress and yet it's going to be unconstitutional. So, so that uh, maybe you can uh, pick us up out of our, pick our heads up off the, off the, off the desk. <laughs> well, in terms of what I would tell uh, uh, lawmakers who are considering proposed gun reform, I mean, the first thing is I would wait a couple weeks like, let's see what happens from the Supreme Court's opinion in Bruin, and let's see what it looks like and what guidance it gives us. Don't spend the political capital to get something passed today if it turns out the court is going to say something, even in potentially dicta, but something that reflects the views of five of those justices on the Supreme Court about particular laws that may or may not be unconstitutional. So I would wait a couple of weeks and just see what the Supreme Court says, first and foremost. Second, one of the things I think is, is likely to happen is that in the wake of this coming Supreme Court opinion, we're likely to see an increasing attention among the lower courts to the evidence that supports gun safety reform. We've already seen this arise in the lower courts, especially among conservative judges who've said, hey, you know, you say you want to restrict guns and you say you've got particularly strong reasons for doing so. Well, what are those reasons and what is the evidence you have to back up those claims uh, uh, the mere assertion by a police chief that something would work doesn't necessarily mean it will work or it will be effective. So one thing I, I've been suggesting to lawmakers is, is that whatever law you you decide to push forward, don't do it uh, impulsively. Um, do lay the groundwork for judicial review. Um, do here set up get up here get get hearings together. Um, uh, call experts, not just police chiefs. Um, really come up with data and all of the studies that will support this particular kind of law that's out there and make sure that they're part of that legislative history. Um, because I think courts will be, um, as they raise the level of scrutiny, however they do it, whatever kind of tests they use or whatnot, you know, the evidence that, that will support gun safety reform is important to have and to show that the lawmakers were aware of that information. So that's one of the things that I, I, I've been suggesting. And then a third thing I've been suggesting is consider ways to bring down gun violence that don't involve regulating guns or gun owners in a way that might run afoul of emerging Second Amendment principles. Uh, so, you know, if we think about like the gun safety reform movement's top agenda items, many of them are likely to be called into question by the Supreme Court. Bans on military style rifles, bans on high capacity magazines, even as we mentioned, red flag laws. Uh, but I think there's a number of kinds of things that lawmakers can do that won't be seriously questioned by the courts, even if they expand the Second Amendment. I think universal background checks is one of those kinds of laws. And then other kinds of laws and reforms and programs that take place outside of the context of regulating guns. So for instance, community intervention programs like Operation Ceasefire, um, these are programs that bring together uh, important people in the community, uh, former gang members, and they reach out to uh, the actually pretty small number of people in any city 
who are responsible for a disproportionate amount of gun violence. And these intervention programs like Operation Ceasefire have a proven track record of success. They're pretty uh, resource and person hour dependent. Uh, They require a lot of those things, and uh, the political will to keep them up doesn't always last, uh, but they've been proven successful. I'd love to see the federal government, for instance, pass a law that provides financing for uh, any uh, mid-sized to large city in America to be able to implement an operation ceasefire, to have the resources necessary to run a community intervention program that can bring down gun violence. Is it going to stop mass shootings? Not necessarily, but I think when we're thinking about gun violence, we should think of it as a public health problem, and that is to say, uh, figure out what evidence will show us Uh, what kinds of policies can reduce the overall number of incidents. We can't set our goal as being we're going to end gun violence in America because we have 400 million guns. We're always going to have gun violence. We're always going to have sexual assault and murder and drunk driving too. And we don't say, well, we shouldn't do anything because we can't eliminate those problems. Instead, what we try to do is come up with uh, solutions that will reduce the incidents Uh, reduce the frequency and number of those kinds of uh, incidents. And we should do the same thing uh, with regards to firearms. Uh, Andy, just on on that, our attention, of course, has been uh, grabbed by the the horror in Texas. But in terms of just bottom line numbers of, of gun deaths, I was hoping, Adam, you could talk to us a little bit about suicides a gun suicide, accidents in the home, issues maybe of gun storage and gun in homes, especially accidents involving um, minor children. Can you just give us a little bit more of a sense, since you studied not just the Second Amendment, but you studied guns, a little bit more just of, of the data as you understand the data? Yeah, well, this is important, too, because I think mass shootings have really taken over America's public attention when it comes to guns and gun violence. Uh, And it's mass shootings that spark reform efforts. It's mass shootings that focus media attention and lead to, you know, me getting invited on terrific podcasts and news programs and whatnot. But if we think about the number of people who lost their lives in uh, the Uvalde school, um, we see more than that number of people lose their lives to gun violence every single day. So in the week since Uvalde, we've had you know, a, a multiple of that many people die at the hands of firearms, either through suicide or criminal misuse of guns or accidents. And we don't talk about that as much. And uh, when it comes to uh, the victims of gun violence, the gun violence has spiked in the last couple of years, although it was uh, coming off of some historic lows over the last decade or so. Um, and, and about 60% of all people who die as a result of a gunshot wound um, do so as a result of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, suicide. Um, when people um, uh, use firearms to try to end their lives, they are um, pretty successful. Now, studies show that uh, suicide is actually kind of hard to do successfully unless you have a gun. A gun to the head really works 
very frequently, 90 uh, odd percent of the time. Whereas jumping off a building or slitting your wrists or uh, hanging yourself, uh, those things are all much less effective. And we find rates of success in ending your life much lower in those spaces. So about 60% of all people who die from gunshots are self-inflicted, that's suicide. Um, Then uh, the largest second group is criminal misuse of firearms, criminal violence. Um, And then we get to accidents, which only make up a small, very small percentage of uh, gun deaths every year, but they do exist. And uh, as Akil mentions, it's often kids who are feeling the brunt of that. And uh, whenever we see children being victims of gun violence or uh, victims of um, uh, gunshot wounds, we're always hypersensitive and much more likely to be concerned uh, in that space. Um, I don't know if that's morally acceptable for us to be that way, but I think that's kind of how we are. So uh, it's important to think if we want to reduce gun violence, it's not just stopping mass shooting. It's also stopping the daily death toll from guns or reducing the daily death toll from guns as a result of criminal violence among gangs and criminals. It's also about seeing what we could do about reducing suicide. Um, Some people say, well, you can't stop anyone from committing suicide. And I I don't think that's right. Uh, I think that um, if you can push people who want to commit suicide away from guns, they're much less likely to be successful and more likely to live a full life uh, in the wake of their suicide attempt. Um, So we need to think about gun violence in broader terms and public health terms and think about the different ways we can bring down gun violence in each one of those spaces um, uh, mass shootings, criminal violence, suicide, accidents. Just two quick things on, on that just to connect. One, a big shout out to my colleague Ian Ayers, who along with um, Fred Vars has come up with a very interesting idea. It's a certain variant of red flag. Red flag laws are often when someone has been threatened, uh, tries to get a judge to restrict temporarily the gun possession of someone who has said something threatening or either the, uh, a victim uh, would be a, a potential victim themselves or a close family member or the police acting on uh, the, at the prompting of, of someone who is, is worried about his or her own safety. And Adam highlighted, well, there's, there are going to be some very serious due process issues that have to be attended to before a judge uh, makes a finding that dispossesses someone even temporarily of a gun based on what they've said or done already. But Ian Ayers, my great colleague um, at Yale, has come along with Fred Vars and said people should maybe be allowed to flag themselves if they know that they are prone to depression. They should be able to get an order that, for example, prevents them from buying a gun on a whim. And they also can designate someone, a lawyer, their best friend, a, a parent, who can override the, the self-limitation that they're imposing on, on themselves. So this is like akin to, in the, uh, the Odyssey, Ulysses tying himself to the mast. When he's sort of sober, he, he knows that he's, there's going to be a moment when he will kind of lose his rational capacity. He's af- uh, afraid that he'll succumb to the siren song, and so he arranges in advance to be tied to the mast um, in a certain moment. So if you know you're prone to depression, Ian Ayers and Fred Vars have suggested you should be able to actually opt into a certain system of self-restraint. And, and if you do it yourself, no one's actually 
to imposing this on you and you actually have an, a, you know, a, a safety valve, an escape hatch. You can de- designate someone if you actually really in the future do need a gun immediately and, and desperately because someone has threatened you or something and you, you, you need to, to protect yourself. So one, just a shout out to um, Ian Ayers and, and Fred Vars for some really interesting ideas. The second thing, Andy, is a shout out to you and and your son, one of my favorite students, Matthew. Matthew is involved in a company that is seriously thinking about self-driving cars uh, that are going to actually, one hopes, have fewer accidents than human-driven cars. I was hoping that Adam could talk about conversations about smarter guns and guns that actually can't be used against yourself or can't be used by someone other than you. Um, they're not going to solve all these problems, but, but they may solve some of them. And I know the gun industry has been opposed to some of these things, even if they're voluntary, because they're afraid that if there becomes a market for this, some jurisdictions may try to actually require them to only sell smart guns or, or, or what have you. But, but any Anyway, um, Andy, since Matthew was very involved in, in, in smarter cars and, and, and vehicles, uh, if Adam has any things to tell us, uh, teach us about allegedly smarter guns. Yeah, well, this is uh, an issue that has come up uh, a lot in recent years about whether we can use technology to uh, reduce gun violence, even if we don't reduce the number of guns out there or Uh, limit, for instance, particular types of weapons. Um, So for instance, um, you know, my phone has a facial recognition or a button that recognizes my fingerprint. You could set up very easily and pretty cheaply a firearm to do the same thing where it had a lock and only someone with a recognized fingerprint or with their face uh, ID um, uh, registered under the gun Uh, Only that person could use a firearm. This would be helpful in some circumstances. Many firearms that are used by criminals, according to studies of uh, criminals in prison and whatnot, um, uh, are obtained by stealing guns. They steal someone else's gun, and then they use that gun. Um, And uh, if firearms had this kind of smart technology, that would make it very hard for them to do so, criminals to steal that gun and to use it. Not to say it's foolproof, but it would definitely provide barriers to doing so. Um, uh, We've also seen uh, in California, we adopted a version of this where we required firearms uh, to leave a certain identifiable fingerprint, if you will, on a casing. Uh, after a round of ammunition, uh, when a round of ammunition is fired, the firing pin would hit the round of ammunition and leave a distinctive mark. Um, and California passed a law requiring gun makers to include that that technology, that kind of uh, version of a smart technology for firearms, to make it easier to figure out who shot this particular round that's found at a criminal at a crime scene. And what happened is, is um, the gun makers just ignored it. And they said, we're, we're just not going to follow that law. We're, we're just not going to do it. And if California wants to stop selling all firearms, then California will stop selling all firearms. Because um, the gun makers kind of knew that California lawmakers were probably not going to be willing to take 
that much heat. And indeed, the law has been on the books uh, for several years, and no gun maker is selling a gun with that fingerprint on it, uh, even though the law requires gun makers to be doing so. So uh, we do see that the gun makers uh, kind of reminds me of the automakers back when Ralph Nader uh, wrote his unsafe at any speed targeting the unsafe automobiles that were out there. You know, the automobile companies just didn't want to put things like um, uh, seat belts in their vehicles. They, they didn't have any great desire at the time to create cages in which uh, the passengers would sit and would be um, much more protected uh, against uh, injury from accidents. Um, and they fought tooth and nail against such reforms, uh, although in the long run, such reforms ultimately helped the industry. Uh, and uh, uh, unfortunately, because of the way uh, guns are so political today, the gun makers feel like they can't do anything to even if they wanted to develop smart technology or put in this kind of fingerprint uh, from the firing pin um, that gun owners and gun purchasers. Uh, would protest uh, those companies or boycott those companies uh, and uh, that gun sellers, uh, gun stores would not sell those firearms because they view it as sort of a backdoor way to regulate guns and gun control. So it's a really difficult uh, space in the economy to reform. It's hard to see the objection of, of a gun owner to, to a, of a gun manufacturer or a gun owner for that matter to an innovation that makes it uh, harder to have your gun stolen. You know, it's a, you, you know, what what incentive do they have to to promote theft of guns? I don't I don't quite get that. Well, I don't think they view it as promoting the theft of guns, but maybe that is the ultimate impact of the of the position. I think it's two things. Number one, there is this general ideological opposition to reform in this space that they don't want to give any strength or momentum. Uh, or wind beneath the wings of gun safety reform advocates. So that's a big part of it, too. So, for instance, in the Clinton administration, the Clinton administration brought a lawsuit against Smith & Wesson. And ultimately, the Clinton administration uh, reached a settlement with Smith & Wesson that Smith & Wesson would sell from then on every gun they sold with a trigger lock. And... Because, just because they adopted a trigger lock, which, of course, most gun owners probably don't have much of an opposition to in terms of uh, it can protect against accidents, it can protect against your young children getting a hold of your gun and firing it uh, against their friends, parents, relatives, or others around the house, even themselves. Um, uh, but gun owners across uh, the country, uh, and especially the gun enthusiasts who are responsible for buying the lion's share of guns, They didn't want those uh, trigger locks, and they said, hey, we will not buy any Smith & Wesson product until this is ended. And indeed, Smith & Wesson uh, had serious financial problems and was sort of the outcast in the gun industry uh, for about a decade as a result of uh, that settlement. Uh, So part of it is just really ideological opposition. There is also a pragmatic argument that they make. You can take it for what it is or what it's worth. Uh, The argument that they'll make is that, hey, you know what, my phone doesn't always turn on when I look at it. When I put my finger, it doesn't always recognize my my finger. If I have someone coming through my window and I need that gun to be able to fire immediately, I, I don't have time to try to deal with technology to try to open the firearm. I need to have it at my disposal immediately. Um, I guess as technology gets more advanced, that argument becomes less and less tenable. Uh, but that's an argument you do hear against smart technology. 
Andy, I'm also wondering, this is just a connection to Matthew, whether there are possible insurance issues, um, and that if you um, make a smart gun and you're an already an established manufacturer, you've got a lot of non-smart guns out there, whether in a lawsuit involving a non-smart gun, they're going to say, oh, this didn't have the, the, the proper safety technology. I don't know, but I, I do know, Andy, from conversations offline with you, that the insurance issues loom large uh, for self-driving cars. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, that's true. I, I think that it's a little bit of a different issue I had in mind with self-driving cars that I think is, is analogous here. You know, self-driving cars, when they're implemented worldwide, will save a million lives a year. A million lives a year. It's a lot of lives to save, you know, every year. So you would think that everyone would be very much in favor of, of that. Um, and, uh, you know, I understand there are some, you know, some interests that will suffer economic losses, you know, maybe, you know, the trucking industry, whatever. But uh, at any rate, the problem is that to get there, um, you know, there are going to be, some, you know, some accidents along the way, right? There will be some deaths from, from autonomous vehicles where the technology was not as mature as they thought it was, you know, and so forth. So, um, you know, out of those million lives that you saved, may, let's say there were, you know, five deaths um, from faulty software or something like that. Well, you know you're going to be reading about those five deaths in the paper, and there'll be, in fact, I think there's a guy that's running for, for the Senate in California now, right, that's trying to make a lot of hay out of the problems with, uh, with Tesla's self-driving uh, software, although actually he may have a point there. But let's, you know, but, but putting that aside for a second, um, so that, so that the, the public focuses on relatively small incidents uh, and loses the the big picture. Now, when we talk about what Adam was saying, well, we have this, and I, I certainly don't feel that the mass shooting is a, is a small incident or something like that. Uh, it, it, I find myself horrified by it. But if you if you look at the the average person and their reaction to gun violence, they don't react to a half million deaths from suicide or whatever, or they don't react to the number of criminals that have that have guns. They react to a mass shooting. So there are these these incidents, and similarly, you know, when we have a terrorist attack, there's a one might say an enormous overreaction, um, and these have to do with behavioral, economic, uh, cognitive science things that people focus on, risk aversion, and that sort of thing. But you know, you've availability talked to, heuristics. You know, right. back to Matthew and his his great mentor at Harvard Law School, also an eminent constitutional scholar. We've got to get him on the podcast at some point in the future, uh, namely Cass Sunstein. Yes. Um, so anyway, I mean, this is a long way of saying that when I was listening to what, what you were saying before, Adam, about, uh, well, we could, do, we could make a dent in suicide, we could, and so forth. I'm not sure that that's what the American people care about, you know, that that's, that that's what they're hoping to come out of, you know, of uh, legislation and stuff. They want an impact on things that you have said are hard to make an impact on on mass shootings and so forth. So is there some validity to what I'm saying there? Um, I think very much so. I think that's exactly right. I think we definitely have biases in how we interpret evidence. Like you, I'm always amazed when I see a series of articles, oh, this uh, self-driving vehicle caused an accident. And, but what's left out of the article is how many individually driven vehicles that day caused an accident. Mm -hmm. And if they were covered with the same kind of, 
um, depth as the uh, self-driving vehicle accident, um, I think people would see the self-driving vehicle accidents as much more rare uh, and be more swayed by that kind of uh, science. An additional problem with smart technology for firearms is that there are 400 million guns out there already in civilian hands in America. That's more than one gun per person. Even if you had a federal law that required every new gun as of tomorrow to be sold with smart technology, um, it would be a long time, many, many decades before over the majority of the gun stock in America had smart technology. So part of the difficulty for advocates of something like smart technology is proving that it works because if you adopt that law today, uh, most of you know the overwhelming majority of guns that are out there, and there's a lot of them, don't have that technology. And um, Adam, on that, what's your view? This is so you know great because you know so much more about this than I do, and our audience is really benefiting. Um, to repeat from from an, an expert, um, what's your uh, view of buybacks? Um, which um, were very prominent, I think, in Australia after a, a, a mass shooting, which I think Canada has just ramped up in a big way, unless I, uh, I've, I'm misinformed. So, and, and, and various localities have, um, police departments and other things have, have done local gun buybacks. What, do you have views on that or data on that? Yeah, there is data on that. First of all, there's two different kinds of buyback programs. There's a voluntary buyback program where the police basically offer an incentive for someone to turn in a gun. That's what we've seen in the United States so far, where a local police, for instance, we had one in Sacramento, California, just uh, in recent weeks, where the police announced that they were going to give out gas cards uh, for people who turn in their firearms. Uh, And so uh, being the price of gas was so high, it was a successful effort. It brought in a bunch of guns. The other kind of buyback program is a mandatory gun buyback program. That's what Australia did, is they declared certain forms, certain firearms illegal, and although they were already possessed by many Australians, there was a mandatory buyback program where you had to turn in that firearm and you were then uh, paid for the firearm, paid the fair market value of that firearm. Um, uh, with regards to voluntary gun buyback programs, the surveys, the studies so far don't show that they're particularly effective in reducing gun violence, um, that the people who tend to turn in their gun for a gas card or for a gift card of some sort are generally people who don't use their guns and don't plan on using their guns um, and don't have any need for a firearm, would rather have instead of the firearm, the gas card. Um, we also, the studies also show that a significant percentage of guns that are turned in in a voluntary gun buyback problem are inoperable firearms that wouldn't be useful for anyone who is committing uh, gun crime or gun violence. Um, uh, uh, and uh, in the United States, one of the main challenges with doing a voluntary buyback program is, is that the gun enthusiasts who are most opposed to gun control and gun safety regulation and who have the most expansive view of the Second Amendment are the ones with the most guns and the least likely to sell one of their guns for a gift card because they believe it's all uh, an effort to try to take people's guns away. Uh, and so they're opposed to that. So a voluntary buyback program, uh, not likely to be tremendously successful. Um, um, the mandatory gun buyback program can work in the sense that um, it's a formal policy where you have to turn in those firearms. 
Um, uh, however, two problems there, uh, one practical and one legal. The practical problem is, again, many of the people who you want to give up, say something like military-style assault rifles, are not going to give them up. Like they don't want to give them up, and they think that they shouldn't have to give them up. And we've already seen in the gun space widespread non-compliance with certain gun laws. Um, California, for instance, banned high-capacity magazines a couple years ago. That law is currently on hold due to a federal court judgment, a uh, federal court ruling. But before it was put on hold, uh, no one, there's no evidence of any police saying that they had gathered any of these high-capacity magazines, that any high-capacity magazines had been turned in. The marketplace uh, in four other states wasn't overwhelmed with people selling their high-capacity magazines in California. So as a result, you end up with a law saying no high-capacity magazines, but there's a lot of high-capacity magazines in the state of California. So non-compliance is the practical problem. And then the legal problem is, is that if the particular firearm is one that the Supreme Court in its new vigorous vision of the Second Amendment thinks is a protected firearm, well, then you couldn't have a mandatory gun buyback of that particular firearm. So if the court says that military-style assault rifles or high-capacity magazines are constitutionally protected, well, then you couldn't have a mandatory gun buyback program. That would be an unconstitutional infringement of the Second Amendment. So uh, I think a buyback is uh, trouble, uh, is difficult to actually be effective. Uh, it's worth noting that in Australia, they bought back about 800,000 of the 3.5 million guns that were in Australia at the time. In the 20 years since the buyback program, those guns have all now been replaced, and the number of guns in Australia is back up to three, about 3.5 million guns. Um, so uh, we could, uh, and, and just to put that in some perspective, in the United States, we're selling about 20 million guns a month right now. So, uh, uh, you know, if you took 100 million guns away from Americans, a significant portion of the gun stock they would likely be replaced pretty quickly given the activity, the gun purchasing activity we've seen in recent years. You used a couple of phrases that I'd like to elaborate a bit. In, in previous work, I've advocated limits on the size of, of ma magazines. Um, once I actually incorrectly used the word clip, that was not the right word. Magazine is, is the right word. And, and people who know their way around a gun can sense it when someone doesn't actually understand stuff. And that, that, that gets their back up because it suggests that you don't respect them and, and something that they do respect, their, their gun. The Clinton-era gun law that, that, that we had um, was criticized by many folks as being focusing largely on certain cosmetic features. Um, and indeed, it, it identified certain uh, makes and models by name rather than identifying particularly dangerous or lethal hardware elements like the, the size of the magazine or whether it's technically an automatic weapon which is one trigger pull and lots of rounds versus a semi-automatic, which requires a separate trigger pull for each round. Although there are certain things like bump stocks that can, can create a little bit more, um, a more speed of, of shooting, even though um, there are, uh, create more of a machine gun automatic-like um, action, even for something that's technically semi-automatic. And of course, certain guns can, even if legal when purchased, can, can uh, be uh, jiggered with to to change their lethality. But here are some phrases that you used, and I just want you to talk a little bit about the background of them. What's an assault weapon? Um, what's a military-style weapon? 
critics say some of the laws actually are focusing on things that that are, just make the gun look nasty, but it, you know don't really make it nastier. Um, and especially given your earlier point that this better be data driven because courts are going to demand actually data. Here's what I've heard, and I just since you're an expert, I want your take on it. They say, oh well, early, some laws they distinguish between having a, um, a wooden stock and a plastic stock, and there's no real difference between them. You know, it's about whether you have flash suppressor, but that really doesn't go to lethality. It's about whether you have a grenade launcher, and that's not really the problem in general in America. It's about whether you have a, a, a bayonet, but that's not really... It makes the gun look nasty, look military. So what is... If you just give us a, a little bit of a primer on automate, automatic weapons you know, versus non-automatic, and I know there are federal laws uh, um, that you can tell us about, semi-automatic versus automatic, caliber, lethality, magazines... What's an assault weapon or an assault rifle or a military-style weapon or military-style rifle? Um, how do you think about stuff like that? This is actually really one of the big challenges in the gun safety reform movement because it's hard to know what counts as uh, an assault rifle uh, or as an assault weapon. Um, the traditional idea is that uh, these are military weapons, the kind of weapons that you'd give to infantrymen uh, to go out uh, in, in, into the field and, uh, and fire at uh, their opponents. Um, the military style of these weapons, however, tends to be automatic. It generally has a, a switch that you can move it from automatic to semi-automatic. Um, an automatic weapon, as you uh, mentioned, Akil, is one where when you pull the trigger once, it fires multiple rounds of ammunition. It's automatic in that it automatically loads a new round of ammunition and fires it uh, based on the previous uh, projectile being uh, sent out uh, of, the, of the firearm. Um, uh, automatic weapons are mostly illegal in the United States. Uh, ever since the 1980s, uh, Ronald Reagan uh, pushed for a law that banned the sale of new automatic weapons. So when we're talking about today's military-style assault rifles, we're not talking about automatic weapons. Uh, they don't have the automatic switch that the actual military uh, rifles would have. Um, uh, as a result of that 1986 law. So all the semi-automatic rifles that we're talking about today as military-style assault rifles are all semi-automatic. They're not automatic. And semi-automatic is, um, uh, it refers again to the way in which a new round uh, of ammunition is chambered uh, and uh, prepared to be fired. But with a semi-automatic firearm, you have to pull the trigger once for each round of ammunition that you fire unlike an automatic firearm. Um, the 1984 assault weapons ban said, uh, we're going to ban certain weapons by name. Like you said, they banned particular uh, models. Eight, eight, was it 84 or 94? Did I say 84? I meant yeah. 94. It was 94 to 2004. The assault weapons ban of 1994 uh, was, it banned particular weapons by make and model number. And then said as sort of a catch-all, well, um, uh, any semi-automatic center fire rifle that, uh, has two or more military-style characteristics. And that gets to the thing like a folding buttstock or a bayonet lug or a flash suppressor or um, uh, a grip in the front of the... Uh, pistol grip. Uh, yeah, pistol grip, what's known as a pistol grip. Um, uh, uh, and so um, what happened when that law was in effect is that the gun makers just made the exact same firearm 
with the same lethality, but without the bayonet lock, without the flash suppressor. Those weren't those particular kinds of features actually weren't associated with a lot of violence in America. We don't have a lot of bayonettings uh, with military style rifles. Um, so it's been a real continuing problem of how to define these firearms. So like I said, the gunmakers just made thousands of these weapons, tens of thousands of these weapons, and sold them during the ban on military-style rifles. In fact, the guns became incredibly popular in that 10-year period, whereas before that 10-year period, there wasn't much demand for them. They became much a much greater demand, but without one or two of the military-style characteristics. Um, California is a good example. California banned assault weapons before the federal government did um, uh, and has had to revise its laws I think about four times now to try to capture what was originally intended by the law because of the gun makers just work, working around it, a gun enthusiast finding little easy ways in which you could fit the letter of the law but make uh, something like a, a, a magazine easily detachable when the law tried to prevent it from being detachable. Um, and, and so it's been a real struggle for lawmakers to really get a grip on these particular kinds of weapons um, because at the end of the day, they're mostly about military styling. And that's why I say a military style, because they look like military weapons. They uh, uh, have some characteristics of military style weapons, but most of the basic characteristics of the firearm that people are opposed to um, are similar, if not the same, as um, many types of firearms that are constitutionally protected, like the handgun. And, and, and if we're talking about um, the hardware, um, one, at least one other thing that I want to you, your, your views on is ammo and not just the guns themselves. Dum-dum bullets, armor-piercing bullets, huge caliber. Uh, the president actually, I think, recently spoke about nine millimeters or, um, uh, you know, uh, or, you know for, in, with handguns, 44 um, um, magnums. You haven't talked as much about handguns versus long guns. I myself in, in previous years did talk about limiting the, uh, the, the size of the, the, the magazine and the detachability of it. But I also said we could talk about stockpile. And again, we'll have to wait to see what the New York case says, but stockpiling of ammo, uh, type of ammo, as well as the, the the guns themselves. So your thoughts on that, please? Well, I'm kind of reminded of uh, Chris Rock, the comedian's bit that he did on guns. He says, don't regulate guns, you know, just regulate ammunition. You know, if you charge a $10,000 tax for every round of ammunition, people will be very hesitant to fire that firearm. They will not, you know, use that round of ammunition. Uh, and that's always a fun way to think about it. And uh, I can't tell you how many emails I get from people. Well, let's not regulate guns. Let's just ban ammunition. One of the things the court said in the Heller case, and I think this makes sense, um, that if you have a right to have a firearm under the Second Amendment, that's a right to have a fully operational firearm, not just a decorative firearm. Uh, you have a right to have a firearm that you can use in self-defense, and that means having access to ammunition. That's not to say we couldn't limit the size of ammunition. So, for instance, California does limit some especially large caliber ammunition that's used in handguns um, because it's so deadly and uh, it, it is viewed as being um, especially dangerous to police and to body armor. Uh, the rounds can easily go through walls and, um, and just uh, thought to be an especially dangerous 
round of ammunition because of its caliber. Um, I think caliber size restrictions on ammunition might well survive Second Amendment scrutiny. I haven't seen any particularly strong arguments for why you need to have a particular caliber of um, ammunition, so long as the caliber that you're allowed to have is uh, an effective and functional type of uh, ammunition. Uh, we'll have to see what the Supreme Court uh, says about this. Um, we've also seen some other efforts to get at regulation of ammunition through background checks. California passed a first-in-the-nation law that required background checks for people purchasing ammunition uh, because the current law under federal law is you have to go through a background check to buy a gun from a federally licensed dealer. But if you go steal that gun from someone, you can go to any gun store in America and buy ammunition without a, a background check. Um, and there's, uh, if we think of ammunition as a fundamental part of a functional firearm, um, then there's good reason to have background checks on ammunition, the same reason that we have background checks on the purchase of a firearm. It seems like it w if you, you know, if it were constitutional to have a background check, for a gun, there's no particular reason it wouldn't be constitutional to have a background check <laughs> for ammunition, you know. And um, so, I'd I'd like to, in the in the time we have left, talk about what could come out of Congress and what the impact might be of. So, in reading the newspaper articles over the last few days, uh, you know, we see that uh, you know Chris Murphy is meeting with John Cornyn, and so we have some discussions, you know, across the aisle, uh, for what it's worth. And the, the, what they have said in the newspaper articles is on the table are possibly red flag laws, safe storage, and background checks, expanding background checks. Now, all each, each of those, it seems to me, uh, would have some impact on, at least in theory, on mass shootings, right? The idea being that, you know, red flag laws, well, you know, uh, well, Background checks, okay? If you mental health, you know, uh, mental illness and so forth, it's believed by some people that many mass shootings are, you know, done by the mentally ill. Um, so, and then you also have questions about domestic violence and things like that. So that's another, you know, another impact of background checks. Red flag laws, we talked about suicide. I don't know how that impacts on mass shootings, but perhaps it might. Um, and not just red flagging yourself, but red flagging, you know, other people. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't see any reason why that wouldn't be uh, okay. You know, in, in the, I'm a retired physician. You know, we have, you know, lots of ways that, uh, you know, doctors not only, you know, can, but have an affirmative duty to flag people that are dangerous to themselves and, and others, Tarasov letters, you know, things like that. Um, and then safe storage. I mean, for example, in uh, Sandy Hook, I believe, you know, the shooter took his mother's gun, just for example. Um, so, so the, you know, the, so all those things might, might have, so that, that seemed to be on the table. I liked what you said earlier. I mean, I want to hear from you more than me, but I, I, I liked what, what, you know, what, what you were talking about earlier when you mentioned, I didn't like, like hearing it, but the, the, uh, gun companies, you know, slippery slope approach to, uh, to things. So the idea of getting something through, that is more than just cosmetic, but, you know, isn't necessarily going to solve the problem, but is actually constructive, is actually, you know, clearly purposed and directed, maybe data-driven, um, you know, to sort of break the logjam. If that were to happen and, there, and the, you know, uh, sky is falling predictions of the 
gun companies and the NRA don't come to pass, uh, then that might provide an, an opening for, you know, further effective regulation. So, um, and, and just on that, Andy, because um, uh, I think Adam's book and his analysis isn't just about um, guns and the hardware and all the technical issues and the data issues, and isn't just about the law of the matter, the Second Amendment and due process and and um, uh, and other constitutional issues. I think his book. Um, and is captured by the title, Gunfight, is also about the cultural issues. And, and he's alluded to them um, at, at times, how, you know, um, the, how the, America has more guns than we have people, and, and that's not true of most other countries, maybe any other country um, in the world. Um, so in addition to what Andy said, um, I welcome your thoughts on whether just any law at all, even if it's not a great policy solution to lots of things, um, might be um, a welcome um, uh, uh, development in the cultural war that that we seem to be having in America, the cultural chasm in America, insofar as any law that could pass, you know, at the state level, perhaps, but especially at the national level, might you know, be a, a, a welcome sign that um, we still are able in America to, to tra- talk across a cultural divide. I think that uh, any significant gun reform from Congress uh, could have both effects. It could both reduce gun violence and help to break the stalemate that we have on guns today uh, in a nation that's very, very divided uh, over these issues. Um, there's no one gun law that's going to solve all the problems with gun violence. Uh, it is a public health problem, and it's going to take a variety of different measures to try to plug in certain loopholes to solve particular problems. And, uh, you know, I think the evidence come, is pretty good that in states like California, where there's no one law that makes the difference, but because of a wide variety of different kinds of regulations, uh, we have a lower uh, fatality rate from gun violence uh, than the national average by a significant portion, by a significant percentage. Um, uh, you know, and almost um, uh, I think it's about 40 percent of the rate in Texas, for instance, where the gun laws are very loose. Um, so there, we need to take uh, an expansive view that tries to come at the gun violence reduction problem from a lot of angles. It's not just one law that needs to be passed. It's a variety of smaller measures that need to be passed. And having one, if Congress can make a move in a direction, um, uh, then it could lead to some kind of cultural change and open the door for more regulation. Although I think, Akil, that might depend on what happens in November. If you if Congress passes a law today uh, or in the next couple months uh, that is a, a serious gun reform legislation, um, and then Republicans who supported it uh, find that they don't get the support they're expecting in the November uh, midterms that are coming up, um, then it may have the opposite effect. It may have the effect of hardening uh, current Republican opposition to reform in, in this space. Um, uh, one thing that might be uh, advantageous in this space, in this moment, is that we're past the Republican primaries. 
um, mm. uh, in the, the vast majority, if not all states, were past the primaries uh, for the Republican nomination. And opposition to gun, uh, to, uh, and I should say support for gun control is thought to be a real um, uh, a, a real disadvantage in Republican mm-hmm. primary elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's people who support gun control are going to get primaried from the right, from an NRA-backed candidate, and have a real difficult time winning that primary election. So maybe that, because we've passed the primaries. It's not like the NRA is going to support the Democratic opponent, you know, as, uh, as a result, you know, so, right. Yeah, but it's not about the general election, Andy, right? right? It's all about we're in gerrymandered districts where the general election is a safe seat for a Republican. It's Mm -hmm. all about the primaries. Mm -hmm. And uh, you are worried about um, uh, not having the support of gun owners who, you know, one of the things we talk about, uh, you know, I know, Akhil, this is important to your work and thinking about the Constitution as a democratic document and as one that's democratically made and remade and reconstructed all the time. Uh, a lot of single-issue pro-gun voters out there. And the reason why Second Amendment protections are growing right now is not because we've all of a sudden come up with all this new evidence of what the framers understood the Second Amendment to mean or about what the framers of the 14th Amendment thought gun rights Mm -hmm. should be when they adopted the 14th Amendment. It's a result of a political movement, a political movement of a lot of very intense believers in gun rights, making this the basis of their vote election after election after election uh, and, uh, and 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 that's so why the reason- and, and at the state level too which is what you know you you began with talk and I have in, in the podcast always emphasized the interrelationship between things that are happening at the state level and ultimately you know federal constitutional law as articulated by the Supreme Court their connections between them on, on that uh, last point um, uh, Adam um, this is a counterintuitive thought and maybe a daft one, but I'll put it out anyway, just as we have to see what's going to happen in November. And as you said, we have to pay attention you know, to what's going to happen at the Supreme Court. I'm going to be interested not just in how far the majority goes, the conservatives, and I hope they don't go too far. Um, I think they, they should strike down the New York law just because it's, it's very unusual. It's an outlier and it's uh, arbitrary and, and, and doesn't really and, and capricious in various um, ways. It, it provides for too much government leeway in, pl- in playing favorites. But I don't want them to go much further than that. But so I'm interested in how far they go. The, the majority, the conservatives, you know, to reinvigorate whatever they call it, whether they call it the Second Amendment or gun rights generally. I'm interested in how the liberals play it, and in particular, are they going to accept the legitimacy of Heller? and City of Chicago versus McDonald on the following, I would say now, narrow issue, which is a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection, whether because of the Second Amendment or because of the 14th Amendment of the Freedoms Bureau or because of unenumerated rights or, you know, in, in America. Um, and if they accept that, which they didn't, of course, in Heller, which is 5-4, and they didn't in City of Chicago versus McDonald, and Sonia Sotomayor actually tried to relitigate this after uh, suggesting perhaps otherwise in her confirmation hearings. I think you know, some people were a little surprised at, um, that she basically you know, went after Heller rather than just trying to distinguish Heller in City of Chicago versus McDonald, which our audience will remember um, applied this right to have a gun in the home for self-protection uh, to states and localities, which we talked about in our, our last episode. And um, So if the liberal actually say, you know what, 
We admit that there's a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection, and we even admit that you may have a right to be, be safe um, outside the home, or may, may, maybe not, just whatever they say about that. And, and it's possible they could even say this New York law is an outlier. I don't, I'm not expecting that. But if they just admit that there's a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection, I, as someone who believes in serious gun control, will cheer because um, this is the daft thought, perhaps, or counterintuitive. It might make it marginally easier for me to get some sensible gun regulation on something else just because there are these you know, paranoid, if you want, or very intense, you know, there are different ways of characterizing the, the gun enthusiasts on the other side who will, no matter how reasonable the proposal I make is, some of them are going to say, this is the first step on a slippery slope that will lead to total confiscation and, and this is what the Nazis did and blah, blah, blah. And I'll be able to look them in the eye and say, actually, you know, that's not what it will be. I personally think that there's a right in the gun to have a gun in the home for self-protection, and I said so before Heller and before City of Chicago versus McDonald's, so I hope I have some credibility with you. Um, but even if I don't, the Supreme Court has now made this clear not once, not twice, but three times, and that should actually matter to you. Oh, the liberals are even conceding that, and that should matter to you. Oh, this is, what's the term I'm using, uh, search for? Settled precedent. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but settled in the sense that you know, not just five or six, but all nine are actually agreeing, which you never had for abortion, nine justices actually agreeing, you know, that there's a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection, not an Uzi, not a machine gun, not 500 rounds, you know, not, I'm saying ironically, counterintuitively, maybe this is daft, maybe I'm just a Pollyanna here, but, but given that I'm going to lose, you know, that, that New York is going to lose the, um, the, that case, I, I predict and Adam is predicting and most people are predicting, it's possible, depending on how the liberals play it um, on the court, that if 9-0 on the court, the court could say, we are no longer fighting that culture war. Um, the Heller-McDonald culture war about a gun in the home. for And, and we couldn't win it anyway, politically, just given where America actually is. My thought is, mm, that might actually help gun control in the future going forward just because we're actually saying this won't be the slippery slope. Adam, I know that maybe sounds a little crazy, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Well, us crazy people should stick together, Akiel. I've argued the same thing, that I think uh, it's important for the future of gun safety reform to get over the initial question of whether you have a right to have a firearm in your home for personal protection. That if Heller becomes more accepted across the political spectrum, it diminishes the possibility that the government will use any new gun control law as the first step on a slippery slope to total confiscation of firearms because we'll have very strong precedent that you can't take away everyone's firearms. Um, So I agree with that. Um, I wonder right now uh, how the liberal justices are approaching this issue, um, especially in light of the uh, leaked opinion in Dobbs, the abortion case. And I could see the liberal justices having their views on some of these hot button divisive issues hardened by the Supreme Court's decision and the majority of the Supreme Court today uh, to overturn Roe versus Wade and to not accept settled law. Because I think what it does is it shows the liberals that actually the answer to overturning a constitutional judgment you don't like 
is to fight, keep fighting, never, never give in, and write continual dissenting opinions and constantly uh, agitate the activists and uh, uh, political actors uh, to uh, refuse this right and to find that right to be wholly illegitimate, um, because that will be the strategy that will have worked in overturning Roe versus Wade. So I wonder if there might not be liberal justices who think that's what we need to do for Heller and for some of the other cases that are going to come down from this uh, very conservative Supreme Court. Okay, well, there's a lot to digest in this in this episode, and we and- we promised our audience serious in their last episode that that we would be wonk ish and not woke. Um, in our discussion, and I think we delivered that because Adam is the ultimate expert on on this. And I, I know I interrupted you, Andy, but I, I think we gave them uh, our audience what we promised. I, I agree. I, I do want to share though one one thought. I want to ask uh, Adam about this before we go because you know in reading over your, your book, um, the one thing that really made an impression on me more than anything else was the and a lot of it made an impression on me, but. This notion that people that believe that most of gun right culture, gun culture, is about hunting, are uh, maybe you know off base. That it really has to do more with questions of self defense um, and autonomy and, and that sort of thing. And uh, you know that that struck me because my visceral reaction when I hear about these shootings is like, and for you know. For hunting, we have to allow this, you know, so it, which, and I think a lot of people feel that way, and it just is completely irrational to have that, that equation, it seems to me, but on the other hand, you know, I, I still don't agree, but this, you know, the notion of, of, of self-defense, if that really is what's behind a lot of this, that's very significant, and I think it also matters in terms of saying, well, this should only apply in rural areas, you know, or something like that, um, so perhaps you'd like to comment on that, I mean, to, to what degree is that re- is is this uh, insight key to understanding uh, the gun wars, if you will? Well, I think we do see that that uh, gun safety reform advocates often think that firearms really are only valued by those who value them for recreational purposes, either going to the shooting range or hunting. Um, when uh, that's not the basis upon which the Supreme Court ruled in the Heller case. Um, although the court did recognize you have a right to have a firearm for any lawful purpose, the court said the core of the Second Amendment was self-defense, self-defense in case of confrontation with a criminal. And if we understand it in that way, that seems like the kind of thing that's worthy of a constitutional principle, that you have a right to protect yourself from someone who's trying to deny you your liberty, even if that party is not a state actor but a private actor. Um, uh, surprisingly, though, I think if you look back at the history of the Second Amendment and the original understanding of the Second Amendment, it was probably more about hunting than it was about personal self-defense. Um, there's really no statements by the framers about firearms being particularly useful to fight off a criminal who's breaking into your home. The very basic understanding of self-defense that we see gun advocates in the NRA talking about today over and over and over again as the reason why you need a firearm was never mentioned by the framers as the reason you need a firearm. It was much more about militia service um, and much more about hunting, which at the time you actually needed to hunt. Like hunting was part of the way in which you fed your family for most people, or for many people at least. Um, Whereas today it's kind of a... uh, 
uh, a recreational activity that's uh, undertaken by, according to demographic data, a smaller and smaller percentage of Americans every year. Um, so understanding that the reason why gun owners today value the Second Amendment is fundamentally about self-defense, um, not about hunting, um, can change the calculation. Although it's worth mentioning, Andy, that many of the firearms that are the subject of debate uh, high capacity, uh, I mean, uh, military style assault rifles or and particular accessories like high capacity magazines are generally not used in hunting. You can hunt with a military style assault rifle. It's just not a particularly good hunting weapon. And no hunter uses a high capacity magazine to because no animal that requires more than 10 rounds of ammunition um, uh, is worth bringing down. Um, that's not what a hunter is looking for to spray bullets. So uh, hunting is really not the heart of the Second Amendment, uh, either in uh, the imagination of gun enthusiasts or, importantly, in the Supreme Court and in the Heller case. All of that's a reminder of what we've talked about in now several previous episodes, that you have to think not just about a full constitutional analysis isn't just about the Second Amendment, but the 14th, where self-defense issues, especially for black Blacks in the South did loom uh, much larger, the Freedmen's Bureau bill. And modern constitutional developments, especially at the state level, that then therefore that also influence Supreme Court understandings of, of unenumerated rights. So what, what Adam just said, I think, fits very nicely with some of the things that we said in our previous episodes, which uh, to repeat, are that some of what Heller said is a bit of a stretch when it comes to the, the original Second Amendment. I don't think Heller is originalism brilliantly delivered, even though I think the result was actually plainly correct because more so as a result of the 14th Amendment and modern constitutional developments, there is a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection. It sounds as if Adam actually agrees with that and further agrees with me that that's less because of the Second Amendment's original intent and more because of other stuff. Well, uh, and I know that's why Akil and I were tripping over each other to get the words out about the 14th Amendment. (laughs) My, my, My apologies, Andy. Because we, we, you know, he has taught me well, you know, when it, when it comes to that. Um, well, so look, thank you so much, Professor Adam Winkler. This is this has been, I think, really valuable for our audience, not to mention for ourselves. And uh, you know, if I if I might even uh, impose on you, perhaps you might be willing to come back with us, maybe after the Bruin case, and and uh, and weigh in on that. It would be really a, a great service to to the public. Love, uh, love to do it. Uh, happy to come on again. Uh, thank you both for a wonderful interview. Uh, I want to take a moment before we end to just a uh, special thanks to uh, Akil, who has been a model for scholars like me who want to reach out to a broader audience. Um, uh, and, uh, and so Akil's books that look at legal history and constitutional history with an innovative um, approach with new glasses, if you will, uh, as, uh, or has, has become my model of how I want to do scholarship. And in particular, uh, I thank Akil. We met at a conference some years ago, uh, ACS conference, if I recall, where David McCulloch was speaking. And uh, we had a conversation about books. And uh, Akil mentioned that uh, a mark of a scholar is someone who can write a book that will last forever. And uh, that particular piece of advice really shaped how I wrote my second book, We the Corporations, uh, and that I very specifically tried to make it not an issue book and more of a book that would 
be something that could last forever uh, and how we understand uh, a particular legal issue. And it shaped how I wrote that book and how I understood the issues in that book. Uh, and uh, that book uh, got me some uh, some nice awards and things like that and some recognition. So uh, I owe at least a, a part of it to Akil and his inspiration, which was foremost on my mind when I was writing that book. So thank you for your inspiration and your example. Well, that means a lot to me because the job of a scholar isn't just to produce work, but to encourage other people to produce it. And this gives me a chance to, I I gave you a shout out at the beginning, um, Adam, and talked about uh, books in particular and how I think constitutional scholars writing books for a general audience, not just books that last forever, but for the people are are really important. And so I can repeat that now, but it also gives me a chance to give a shout out to to Andy, because again, um, what we're supposed to be doing is not just producing ideas, but helping other people um, produce and get ideas out there. And and Andy, but for you, you know, I wouldn't be able to get my ideas out there to this uh, general audience through the 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 podcast. So just as you know, um, Adam is saying, I kind of encouraged um, him to get his ideas out there in a certain form. Um, Without you, Andy, I couldn't get my ideas out there in a form as well. So so thank you for that. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, thank you both, and uh, we'll be back with you uh, next week, and uh, who knows what will happen <laughs> between now and then. Thank you again, Professor Adam Winkler. Thank you. Thank you.